Okay, boys and girls of the Dad Presents, thanks for joining the show. I am so excited today to bring to you our guest, Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, I don't know if he's the smartest man in America, but he's definitely the smartest guy I've ever talked to, and more than likely, he's probably going to lose about 20 IQ points from this conversation today, so we appreciate him coming in. But first, you know... uh, couple things I want to get to. And again, you know, if you don't want to listen to myself rant at you, just just fast forward about five, 10 minutes and we'll be through it and we'll be on to better things with Mr. Tyson. Um, what I'm thinking about today is free speech. It's important, guys. It's really important. It might be the most important thing in our democracy. And I don't want to rant today. I don't want to lecture anyone. I just want to reach out with love and kindness and compassion and ask for everyone to think about it, to think about how important it is and to look at our situation. You know, right now we've got all these social media companies, all the major media and all of Hollywood working together in a concerted effort to repress certain kinds of speech. I mean, voices are silenced and even expelled from these mediums if they don't fit into the acceptable mainstream narrative. You got Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. This guy is a literal American hero. He's a gay liberal journalist who risked his life. He risked his life to bring the American people to Edward Snowden's story to let us all know that Americans were being spied on illegally by our government. And after he brought us that story, after that was exposed, did they stop spying on us? No. Was Edward Snowden celebrated in the streets and are we building statues to him? No, he's a fugitive because the government wants to arrest him for exposing them. I mean, this guy, Glenn Greenwald, who brought us this story, he was censored by big tech and the media because they, it doesn't matter why. You, you can't censor anyone, not especially a man with the integrity like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Who has more integrity than that guy? If you're going to censor that guy, who's not to be censored? And since he's been censored, only Fox News has even been willing to give him a voice on the air. You know, Fox News, we all know Fox News leans one way, right? I've made fun of Fox News a million times, but they're the only one giving Glenn Greenwald a voice. That's pretty messed up. The New York Post was banned from all social media for a story that the mainstream just did not approve of. They didn't disclaim it. They didn't say it wasn't true. They didn't, they didn't do anything. They just banned the story. Didn't even try to discredit it. Just silenced it. I mean, you've got Hollywood blacklisting certain celebrities like Kirstie Allen and James Wood and John Voight, the same way they did to, to communists 60 years ago. This is scary stuff. During the first wave of coronavirus, any doctor or scientist who presented evidence that did not fit within the acceptable narrative had his videos blocked and removed. That's literally the same thing the mainstream did to Galileo. You know, the scientist Galileo that you learned about in school? That's what they did to him when he went against the narrative that the earth was the center of the universe. He said, "Uh, no, it's not. They banned him. Guess what? He was right. In Salem, New Hampshire, 
anyone who dared to go against the narrative about witches, they were tried as witches themselves. I mean, in our past, in America, not too long ago, we've seen books like Huckleberry Finn and Catcher in the Rye banned. We've seen government ban certain types of music and movies and attempt to shut down magazines that they deem dangerous. That's not okay, guys. And, and typically, most of the American public has been united in fighting against this stuff, but not now. And I mean, once we start banning books again, like Amazon is doing right now, Amazon is banning books they don't agree with. That's happening. And once we start banning certain types of speech, like Facebook and Twitter and CNN are doing, how far away are we from the point where we start murdering journalists like Saudi Arabia does? I mean, how much different are we than them at that point? It's, it's terrifying stuff. Yet many citizens seem to support this type of censorship right now because, well, I don't know why. I, I imagine they support it because they think that the people banning the speech have their best interests at heart or that they're on their side politically. And politically, they may be on your side right now. Okay? Now, right now. But think bigger than that. Think longer term. Think about what happens when power changes hands and the people you don't agree with take control of the institutions. What happens then when you've already established that it's okay to repress certain kinds of speech if you don't agree with it? Because that will happen, everyone. It's a near certainty. I mean, power is fleeting. No no group of people have, have held the power in this country ever. It's going to happen. So what happens when those people are the ones repressing the speech? And they have the bully pulpit to do so because the precedent has already been set. The freedom of speech is the single most important tenet of our democracy. Without it, all of our other freedoms are naked and vulnerable because, because we can't talk about them. We can't, we, can't, we can't point out when our other freedoms are violated because we have no means to communicate it with each other. Freedom of speech and the right to bear arms, they go hand in hand to protect us. It protects us from tyrannical rule. And once speech becomes controlled as it is now and as it will continue to get worse if we don't step up and do something about it, then speech becomes propaganda and our voices become powerless. We got to fight to protect speech even when we don't agree with what is said. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of this. Okay, In 1977, the ACLU, whom you all know, whom, whom, whom I love and respect, they fought for the right for Nazis to march through Jewish communities of Skokie, Illinois. I, used to, I worked in Skokie this past winter. Okay, I did a lot of work there. It's a heavy, old-school Jewish neighborhood, you know, with the hair and the whole thing. Now, the ACLU definitely does not support Nazism, so why would they do that? Well, because they were smart enough to see the big picture. They knew that if you started banning certain types of speech, even hate speech, that it was only a matter of time until all speech was controlled. And we're nearing that point again. So if you choose not to protect freedom of speech, then what happens? What happens again when the people calling the shots don't agree with you on what hate speech is? We can't sit by passively as others are having their speech repressed, even if we don't agree with what they're saying. We got to speak out about it. I'm doing that now. You guys got to do it. Everybody's got to do it. Even, you know, Facebook... Facebook is repressing myself. You know, I have, I have what, 70,000 followers on that page. When I posted something, it used to get bare minimum of 35,000 views. Now I'm getting less than 1,000. 
Nothing changed about what I was doing. That happened about the same time coronavirus came out because I started posting some things that didn't fit the mainstream narrative. And a lot of those things that I posted have since been proven correct in time. Okay? We've got to fight for our freedom of speech. Literally, our republic depends on it. Um, the other thing I want to, I just want to touch on quick is we're going back into lockdown and I'm not super happy about that. We were supposed to go to Pennsylvania to see my, my family who I see once to twice a year in Pennsylvania and probably not going to happen now. It may, but probably not. There's too many restrictions, too many rules. And, and here's all I want to say about that. Now I'm not trying to be a whiny baby. You know, we got to, we got to join forces to do whatever we can to stop this disease. Okay. But they've not been honest with us. And they're not going to stop this disease. It's a virus. Viruses spread. And I'm going to say the same thing I said in March. Now, let me remind you, I pulled my kids out of school in February at the first whiff of this virus because I work in healthcare. And I know a pandemic is not to be fucked with. But then by middle of March, when they were actually shutting down the schools, there was enough information available to all of us that I knew it wasn't what they were telling us. This disease mostly affects the elderly and people with other conditions. Okay, that's those are the facts. And you're not going to stop the spread of it with lockdowns unless you're willing to go whole hog. Unless you want to go full authoritarian, lock everybody in their house for four to six weeks, no essential workers, no grocery stores, no hospitals, no police. Everybody gets locked in. Locked in for four to six weeks, starve out the virus. That might stop it. But we're not going to do that. They have no intention of doing that. And they probably shouldn't. That would be a horrible thing. These half-assed lockdowns don't do anything to slow down the spread. They might slow it down slightly, but they don't stop it. So it just puts off the inevitable. And it's killing our economy. And you might think, well, so what? Saving lives for, for saving lives is worth hurting the economy. Well, you're not saving lives. You can't prove you've saved any lives, number one. And number two... Hurting the economy kills people. We're on the precipice of a depression. And the last depression we had in the 20s killed far more people than any pandemic. These are the same things I said in March. Our, our politicians are using this disease just like they used the attack in 9-11 to push an agenda. They did the same thing in 2008 when the markets crashed. They use, they, and they tell you, they will straight up tell you, never let, uh, Dick Cheney said it, Other Hillary Clinton also said it, never let a good disaster, a good tragedy go to waste. So I don't know, man. I, I don't want to put off Neil anymore. Super excited to talk to him. Okay, you guys, spread love, you dirtbags. Let's talk to Neil. All right, guys, I got some exciting news. The dad is now not only a 47-year-old professional athlete, but I'm now also a 47-year-old professional underwear model. That's right, guys. We got a new sponsor, sheathunderwear.com. Use code word DAD for 20% off the greatest underwear ever. Sheathunderwear.com. These guys are amazing. Uh, six months of lockdown has paid off as fat party dad has become buff underwear model dad. Um, and look, guys, I know... You all know I've gone the first 46 years of my life commando, and that's for a couple reasons. Um, number one, I'm a free spirit. And number two, I've got a lot of beef down there. And, um, you know, underwear, it mashes it all up. It makes it uncomfortable. It makes it sweaty. It's, 
I just, I've, I've never dug it. But for the last year, I've been wearing sheath. They've solved all those problems. They got two pouches, two pouches in their underwear, one for the peener and one for the baby seed maker. These underwear, they keep everything separate and cozy in their own little pockets. And it just solves all those problems. It's amazing. It's like a little blanket for your balls and another one for the peen. It's amazing. You know what? I mean, like when I was a kid, when I ate, I didn't like when my peas would touch my mashed potatoes. So I'd build like physical barriers between everything on the plate. I didn't like the things to touch. And that's what these underwear do, but before you're junk. And I'm telling you, it's just the greatest thing of all time. And the material they're made out of, you know, honestly, I don't know what it is. I probably should educate myself on that, but it's made out of something special. It's, it's probably made by NASA. Um, you can go on the website, sheathunderwear.com and read about it. That's what you should do. All I know is this material keeps everything fresh and cool all day long. It's like, it's like, what's it like? It's like having your little like personal secretary. No, a, a little personal angel down there all day long, just gently blowing cool air on your balls. You can't beat it. These underwear, they're so perfectly comfortable that I even wear them to bed. I've been sleeping naked since I was six years old. I wear these to bed. I mean, they're more comfortable than the sheets. Guys, look, you got to try them. And, and ladies, they make panties for you too. Now, I know you don't need the secret little pockets, but you're going to love the fabric. It's super comfortable. So check them out and get some for your man. Her never suffer from sweaty stink balls ever again. Um, now, look, I don't know. I don't think this is a story I've told on the podcast before, but when the bride got preggers the first time, and before I even knew she was pregnant, in fact, this story is how I found out. I came home from playing volleyball like I did nearly every day. And I took my shorts off and she literally yelled out, gross, Matt, your balls stink. Yelled that to me. Now, I mean, we all know that pregnant ladies, they get hormonal and moody, but they also develop like superhero sense of smell. And she shouted that out at me and it hurt my feelings and gave me a little bit of a complex for the next nine months, to be quite honest. And, and I took special care of my, my grooming. That's when I started trimming down there and, and uh, taking care of the old boy. But if I had sheath underwear at that time, it wouldn't have been a problem and it would have saved me a lot of heartache. So guys, um, get these underwear. I promise you will absolutely love them. you throw out all your old ratty, holy, crusty underwear and you go 100% sheath. So check them out, sheathunderwear.com, code dad for 20% off. You're going to love them. Best stuff on earth. All right, guys, let's get into it. All right, guys. Uh, super excited today. We've we're honored to have astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson on the show. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just read your book, uh, astrophysicist astrophysics for people in a hurry. Uh, my kid read the one for children. Great books. So I recommend them to everybody. Um, if you don't have a lot of time or you don't want to get like into the super complicated weeds of these issues, these, these really lay it out for simpletons like myself. And I appreciate that. I want to ask you one question right off the top about the book. Um, right off the beginning, you, you start about the Big Bang and you write, in the beginning, all the space and matter and energy in the entire universe could be found in something smaller than the period at the end of this sentence. So we all learned about Big Bang in school. Um, but I still have some questions about that. Number one, 
where did the dot come from? <laughs> and number two, what's what's outside the dot? Do we have any way to quantify that or understand that? The dot was from, was from a typewriter. Okay, <laughs> that's what. <laughs> uh, so let me back up for a moment. Two or three pages before you read that, there was the the leading quote for the book, which was, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. Ah, okay, good. We have our five biologically endowed senses, which are everything to us. The entirety of how we sense the world around us, the external world, and some senses are not as useful as others. For example, the taste of a lion is not as useful to you as the sight of a lion <laughs> because <Right. laughs> you sure. can see much greater distances than you can taste, for example. So not all senses are equal, but they're, they're nonetheless important. And these senses are honed in the plains of Africa to find your meal, to not get killed, to, you know, to, to do things that are in the interest of survival. And they're not honed for figuring out the universe. So, Otherwise, advanced physics would be everyone's easiest subject, and it's not. So that's my first point. Second, you want to know what was around before the dot? I have no idea. It's a frontier. We have top people working on it. We, we have some ideas, uh, but there's no evidence in support of those ideas other than their fertile backstrapolations from what we know works in the, in the universe that we live in. So backstrap, I just made up that word, you know, you can extrapolate to some future point, you can backstrapolate, you can say, if all of these conditions gave us this universe, is there anything else those conditions would give us? And from that, you can conclude that maybe there's a multiverse, right. and which point the universe is popping in and out of existence all the time. So you ask what's outside of that dot or our universe, there are other universes, possibly an infinite number. That's all consistent with the laws of physics as we know it, and quantum physics and general relativity, this sort of thing. So it's not a story. We didn't just pull that out of our ass. It was. It's all. Um, it works in our current formulations of how the universe, um, how the universe came to be. So, but but the the, the blunt answer is we don't know. We're working right. on it. Right. And and at any given moment, there are always scientific frontiers. Right now, that's one of them. Yeah, that whole multiverse thing is is mind blowing, and it isn't ultimately like when you get down to the dot, and then the question of where the dot came from. Isn't that where religion steps in and tries to provide answers that science can't? And then once science does, then there's then there's they're going head to head, right? Science and religion. Uh, I don't know a single time in the history of human thought where science said, "Oh, religion." You did it right. Okay, we, we concede. <laughs> right. What's written here in the Bible is more accurate than what we have measured about the physical universe. I don't think that has ever happened. Right. And so that's a point to, to reckon first. Second, the, um, it's not that science can't answer it. It's just science hasn't yet hasn't answered yet. it. Right, yeah. All right, we fully understand there's still some edge work that we're doing on it, but we fully understand how the sun got here and how the moon got here. So these are, these are things that are explicitly described in biblical Genesis. Okay. So God, God created 
days before God created the sun and the moon. Okay? And so God created the sun and the moon to separate day from night. Okay? And so it, it's a creation story, and the, all took place in six days. We know that is not how long it took for the universe to form. Of course. Certainly not our solar system. And so, uh, plus, there is no, there's no hint in, in the Bible, if we take that as an example. There are other religious texts around the world, but take the Bible as a, as a benchmark here. There's no place that indicates that Earth is a three-dimensional spherical object moving around the sun. All reference to it indicate that it's flat and it's right. at the center of all motion. So, so, it's, so those were frontiers at the time. Science had nothing to say about it. We didn't have the, the methods and tools were not honed and developed. As they got developed, no, there is no religious person who is saying the sun is going around the earth. Right. There's no religious person, I think, who's saying earth is flat. I think the flat earthers are not religious, <laughs> I don't think. So they have, they have some other acts to grind. So, so there are, there's plenty of things that religious people have ceded to the progress of science. And it just pushes, and I've said, if, if, you're, if you're content by saying God is where science has yet to tread, then that's a very slippery slope. Because sure. that would mean for you that God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. And that sounds like very unstable ground to base your religion on. And so enlightened religious people don't pin the physical universe on their religious text. They pin their spirituality and their, you know, lessons for living, this sort of thing. The enlightened modern religious person does that. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I grew up Catholic, and you slowly learn that you're taught a lot of nonsense, and it's, you know, just because they didn't know yet. Um, now, you, you get into the uh, subatomic particles in this book, uh, quarks and leptons and bosons, and, and we didn't learn about that coming up. I don't know if they didn't know about it yet, or they couldn't wasn't solid enough to well, teach. Depends how old you are, but uh, depends old. how old you are. But, uh, <laughs> old man, very old man, dad, dad age. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, particle physics did not reach maturity until the 1970s, okay. where particle accelerators were finishing out our understanding of the structure of particles. So the full understanding of quarks. And you can make particles that have two quarks and three quarks and, uh, you know, all the antimatter counterparts to matter. All of that got fleshed out to create what today, beginning in the 1980s, maybe a little earlier, if we saw it on the horizon, is what we call the standard model of particle physics, where all the terms that you just mentioned, those sit peacefully in that in that table. Mm -hmm. And I once asked Steven Weinberg, he's a... He's a uh, physicist, dec highly decorated physicist, Nobel Prize and, and the like. Um, and I said, aren't you concerned that there's so many particles? Doesn't that make the universe seem needlessly complex? And he said, no, I'm not concerned that there's so many particles. I would be concerned if we had, you know, I'm not concerned that there are 100 particles. I would be concerned if we required 100 laws in order to describe them. Yeah. But yeah. in fact, there's just a few. 
Right, which you explain in the book. Um, talking about those particles, we now have there's the the uh, CERN particle collider in Switzerland. You can say it, CERN. You can say it, CERN. CERN. That's how you say it, CERN. Okay. CERN. Yeah, yeah. And they're shooting subatomic particles at near light speed at each other, trying to explode them into smaller part- particles, and ultimately looking for what I guess you guys call the God particle. Um, so. This is going to be a dumb question, but humor me here. I read the sequel to Angels to to um, the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, and they they reference this there. Now, of course, it's fiction; it's nonsense. But they reference antimatter. You know. Antimatter, right? Yes. And that is the end of everything. Why is that nonsense? Oh, it's complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know Dan Brown. He was already on shaky ground with the first story. Mm-hmm. And then the second story, he just went off the cliff. A very popular novel. I mean, it's one of the most, the highest sold books ever. Yeah. I mean, it's up there with, with Lord of the Rings. I mean, if you sure. look at the numbers. And so I don't want to take that away from the guy. Um, but they're walking around like antimatter in this glowing vial is some magic substance that the Vatican controls. And as far as I know, there's no particle accelerator under the Vatican. As far as I know, Catholic priests do not carry extraordinary expertise in particle physics. <laughs> and so, so, and not only that, antimatter, we create that all the time in the laboratory. Yeah. We, we've been creating it since the 1940s or something, early 50s. It sure, was predicted sure. in the 30s, I think it was. Uh, Enrico Fermi predicted the existence of antimatter. <clears throat> Within several years of that, I think the late 40s, we discover it in the laboratory. It, it, it exists all the time. So Dan Brown decided to sort of pull it out because it sounds kind of cool. Antimatter. Oh, my gosh. This will destroy the whole world. Well, antimatter, when it comes in contact with matter, it annihilates and you get pure energy. And if pure energy became particles again, it would make a matter antimatter particle pair. So this is the symmetry of nature. And the recipe for that is E equals MC squared. Yes. So so. Um, they made a big deal of antimatter and no one else does because there's no need to. When you, it's, when common, you, it's a common substance that we make. Yeah. When you read stuff like that or see science fiction movies that are nonsense, is that like incredibly frustrating to you or do you just kind of do what everybody else does and put your knowledge aside and try to enjoy it? Oh, yeah. So, no, I, I, I easily enjoy um, science fiction even when they have serious gaffes. I just, I'd like big budget movies trying to tell me a story and entertain me at the same time. Later on, I'll write about the stuff they got wrong, but while I'm, while I'm enjoying the movie, no, I'm not, I'm not poking my neighbor saying, that could never happen, oh my gosh, look what, no, I don't do that. I mean, it would be, that's all I would do for the whole movie, especially sure, in movies sure. like Star Wars where, you know, ships are making noise in the vacuum of space. You know, that's the start there, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the ship comes in from space into a loading dock and there's no airlock or anything between space and the loading dock. People just walking around like, it, you know, have you really thought this through? They're, clearly they haven't. So I, I don't, I look for, in movies that get nothing right, I look for what they do get right and then I celebrate that. And movies that try to get everything right, I look for where they got wrong, what they got wrong and highlight that. So yeah. that's been my pastime over the past couple of decades, actually, ever since yeah. Titanic yeah. got the wrong sky over the sinking uh, ship. Yeah, I remember reading that. From you. Yeah, 
Um, on, on these these uh, quantum these these particles, I, I don't think I'm understanding this correctly. I I, I don't think I can be. I, I think I read that these particles can exist in two different places at the same time, and that they react differently when they are being observed. Okay, you might be thinking of a quantum entanglement, which is you create a pair of particles. Well, so I, I don't know exactly what you're referring to, but I'll give two descriptions that I think touch what you just said. So one of them is there's a way to create a pair of particles that are counterparts to one another. All right, and you don't know which particle you're about to measure until you measure it. And the moment you do, the other particle comes into existence in that same instant, and you know exactly what its properties are because they're the complementary properties to the one you measured. So that is instantaneous knowledge of something at a distance that is not restricted by relativity, for example, by the speed limit of light. So that's one example. And another example that I think touches what you're saying, a particle is not only a particle, it's also a wave. It is, it, they are one and the same. And unfortunately, the word wavicle never caught on. I was, I was rooting for it. God, they put that in back in the 80s, but you know, no, such, no such luck. <laughs> so this wavicle, uh, so what it means is when the particle manifests as a wave, the wave is, is here and there. The wave occupies three-dimensional space. That is the particle. So the moment you want to measure the particle, what the, what the way it's described is the wave function collapses to become the particle that you measure at the location where you take the measurement. So, but only when you're, you're measuring it. So the wavelength. Yes, only when you're measuring. That's correct. What's that? So the wave the wavelength becomes the particle under observation. The wave itself becomes the particle. That's correct. The wavelength is a measure of how much energy the particle has. But um, yeah, it comes yeah. the particle. The physical particle comes into existence upon the measurement, and and the wave disappears, and it becomes the particle. Because in that mode, you are interacting with it as, as a particle rather than as a wave. But when it's a wave, it can be anywhere. So that's how a particle can start on one side of a wall and end up on the other side of the wall. Because in the yeah, wave function, the wave. the wave function permeates the wall, and the right. wave function can collapse on the other side of the wall without ever passing through the wall. So this is called tunneling, quantum tunneling. And it happens all the time. The sun makes us energy that way, for example. I think I kind of understand, but this one also has to sort of be filed under the universe does not have to make sense to you. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, just, that's just wild. That, that almost yeah, I'm not asking you to understand it, but to recognize this is what the measurements show us. Yes. Now, earlier you mentioned that you observe it and it changes. Um, people have overreacted to that word used in that context, especially the New Age movement, especially uh, people who want to think that your consciousness somehow affects matter. Yeah, like that movie, what was it, documentary if, about a decade ago where you could look at a glass of water and talk nice to it. What, what was that movie? I don't know. It's escaping me. But it, yeah, I'm, I'm right up that alley. I, I, I saw the... Uh, yeah, there are people who want to believe that there's some kind of consciousness yes. field. And the... Um, but all I'm saying is that you're... The, the observer... It's called the observer effect, where 
If you observe something, it's in a different state than what it is when you're not observing it. And people are thinking that that's your consciousness, but it's not. It just has to do with the fact that you cannot know it's there until you shine light on it, for example. And the moment you do that, the light sends it into another place. Got it. So in principle, there are certain things you cannot measure about an object. In the early days, we said you cannot observe. But like I said, I'm staying away from that because it misleads people into thinking that it's that you influence the outcome. No, you didn't influence it. The fact that you have to shine light on it. Yes. Okay, where is it? Let me tell Oh, there it is. No, it's not. It's over there. Because the, the particles are so sensitive that any amount of light you shine on it to okay. see that it's there forces it to jump into another state. So, so the particles are reacting with the wavelength of the light, not with your uh, looking at it. That's why I always said a measurement rather yeah. than your awareness of it. Yeah, you're right. You become aware after you make the measurement, and it's the measurement that has to go in there and shine. Now, we do this all the time. Oh, it's not enough light in here to take the picture. Turn on the light. Mm, that's well, we turn on the light, and we're still there. Mm -hmm. Well, if we were particles and you turn on the light, and then we jumped into another room, then the act of trying to photograph it itself changes the state of what you want to photograph. Yeah, that's a good analogy. This is disturbing information in the early days of quantum physics. And yeah. uh, it upset Einstein and a bunch of people. But that's how the world works. Get yeah. over it. <laughs> yeah. Now, hey, uh, you did a good job explaining that. I think I get that one much better. Um, now, another thing I came across in your book that confused me a little bit from what I previously thought I understood is, you know, at, the, at creation, the universe exploded from that pinpoint and it started expanding. And we know from the laws of inertia that it will continue to expand unless something gets in the way and that something getting in the way is gravity. Now, I previously thought that gravity was starting to overtake the inertia of the explosion and the universe was eventually going to collapse in on itself. Now I read about something in your book called um, uh, negative gravity, dark energy, uh, which I've, I'd never heard that before, dark energy. Really? No, oh, wow. okay. I mean, I, well, I'd heard about dark. <laughs> I, I, I'd heard about dark matter, but uh, dark energy. Okay, so what ultimately is happening? Is the is the universe? Do we know is the universe going to keep expanding forever? Or is it ultimately going to collapse in on itself, or is this okay? At no time in your life did you ever read that the universe would one day recollapse. That no? the, the data has never said that. What you might have read was of the ways the universe could unfold one of them is that it could collapse so now let's check the data oh no the data show that we will expand forever so anytime we have ever had data on the universe it has shown us that we will expand forever expand forever now it doesn't mean gravity isn't still operating on it it is you can slow down but still expand forever so so there's no just because you're slowing down does not mean you will stop and reverse okay you can slow down at a slower rate than your expansion is taking you and that way the expansion wins out over your 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 slowing down but now add to that dark energy and all bets are off right this is an this is a a pressure in the vacuum of space operating against the wishes of gravity it's pretty serious won a nobel prize the discovery for it and uh, people are dealing with it. <laughs> we still don't know what it is, what's causing it. It's, at, at, just like dark matter, dark energy is a mystery. 
Okay. So, I mean, in, in theory, the, the universe is expanding, but the expansion... No, in, pre- in, in measurement, the universe yeah. is expanding. Yeah, in measurement. In, it, in, in measurement, it is expanding, but the expansion is slowing. But we, we, it's not going to sl- come to a stop because that I guess the, the dark energy would... Even without the dark energy, it wasn't okay. coming to a stop. But now throw in the dark energy, and what's going to happen is the universe, the, the dark energy overtakes gravity, and the expansion will accelerate. So the spooky part is there's nothing to stop the acceleration because yeah. it's a property of the vacuum. And the bigger the universe gets, the more potent that pressure is against the gravity that's trying to hold things together. So we get an imbalance. Right. And the expansion, um, the, the expansion accelerates and wins out over gravity. And there are people who are worried that the rate of expansion might be greater than the very fabric of the universe can accommodate. And then you get what's called the big rip. Mm. And that's been calculated to happen in about 10 to the 30 years. That doesn't sound fun. So, I mean, <laughs> is, so as the, as the universe is expanding, gravity would be getting weaker, right? Because the objects are further. Relative to Relative. the dark energy, yes. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, all right. Let's get into to some fun stuff. Um, you know, people love the idea of traveling. People, myself, love the idea of traveling to other galaxies and finding aliens. Um, however, we know it's impossible. I'm in that list. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think nobody most, doesn't love the aliens. Yeah, most dreamers, you know, that's very exciting. Um, but we know nothing in the universe can move faster than the speed of light. And we know the nearest galaxy is thousands of light years away, which would make it seem like it's impossible for a human to make that trip. But then we also know that you can bend space using gravity. So is that the most likely way that interstellar travel happens for humans, or is that a pipe dream? We don't know any other way to make that happen because human physiology, human biology does not last long enough to work on the trips given the propulsion technologies we currently have. Um, yeah, you can get to the moon, that's three days, to Mars, that's you know nine months. If you wanted to get to the outer solar system, you can get there in a few years. That's all within a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You want to go to, let's go back to the period at the end of the sentence. If the sun were the size of the period at the end of the sentence, you can ask how far away is the nearest star? It's about four miles away. So space is supremely empty. And it would take major fractions of your lifetime in order to traverse those distances. So you need some new understanding of the fabric of space and time in order to make that happen. And one of the ways to do that is a wormhole or some other kind of warp drive that warps the space and then you travel over the, 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 short, the shortcut, if you will. Mm-hmm. Space unfurls again and then that's the full distance that you shortcutted effectively going faster than light without traveling through the space to do so. Wow. And so that, if, and if we don't come up with that, there is, there's, no, there's no space travel. Okay, and that, that wormhole, we can only create that through some massive uh, amount of gravity. As far as we know, yes. It takes How massive, massive are we talking about? Uh, you'd have to wield sort of the mass of all the stars in the galaxy. <laughs> okay, all right. And, so and you know, that, that's, that's, uh, it's the order of that, it's on that order of magnitude. 
and plus the equations show that wormholes are unstable. So you have to you have to keep them pried open, and if you're not vigilant about it, they'll collapse and you'll lose it. And so if you're in the tunnel while that's happening, that's the end of you. Yeah. So that's one of the great challenges. How do you stabilize a wormhole? And can we make a wormhole at all? And if we can't and don't, then what does it even mean to dream about traveling among the stars? Yeah. All right. So allow me to, to speculate a little bit on that. Um, the Pentagon confirmed this year that we have UFO materials. They, they've confirmed the videos of those tic Not materials. Not materials. Not materials. Just videos. Just the videos of the, the tic tac yeah. from Navy Commander David Draper, yeah. right? Uh -huh. I thought I thought they confirmed that there were also some materials. No. Oh no 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 no. Okay. There are, there right. are people who make that claim. It's not the military. Got it. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's different. All right. Still, super big news, right? Super big news. It made news. Yeah, people love UFO sightings. Yeah. Especially by authorities rather than Farmer John in his backyard. Yes. Yeah. Makes it a little more official. Um, do you have make it more true, but no. it makes it more official? Yes. Do you have any suspicions of what that might be at all? No, no, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's an interesting object, but I, I have no idea no what idea. it could be. So that's why, to me, it's an, a UFO. It's an unidentified flying. I can't identify it. Yeah. So I, and and the, the, the Navy, I think it was the Navy, um, I think they rebranded it because they didn't want UFO to be the... It's, it's silly because it's, it's a UFO. They rebranded Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, UAP. Okay. But that's that's identical to what any of the rest of us would call a UFO. So, yeah, it's, it's an intriguing UFO. I just wish we had better data than monochromatic fuzzy footage taken from an F-18. Sure. Yes, absolutely. When, when six billion photos and videos are uploaded, high resolution photos and videos are uploaded to the Internet every single day because everyone has a video camera. Mm -hmm. And somehow the best evidence for aliens is fuzzy tic-tac video on a monochromatic screen. That's a problem. It's a problem of, of reliability of interpretation on really ratty data. And it's, it almost seems like the fuzzier the image, the more confidence people have that they're alien. And I, don't, I, I, I can't embrace that way of thinking about the material world. Right. Yeah, and well, if it is, if if it were alien, by what we know about the universe, they would have had to do exactly what we were talking about before and bend time with some massive use of gravity, unless they are like beings who live forever. It's That's much harder to show up only on a navy video. Yeah, it's much harder <laughs> than anything else. Yeah, are they are they aiming for the U.S. military to give to to show up? Is that really what they're doing? They're coming to Earth and only going to show up in front of the navy and be a fuzzy monochromatic blip is that really what's going on here so in terms of ranking what is most sensible uh yeah i would say it's some glitch that we haven't figured out yet and just the fact that you haven't figured out mm -hmm. does not then mean it's aliens yeah you know when i say we don't know what was around before the big bang that does not mean god was there to make the universe sure just because i don't know the answer doesn't mean you know the answer of course. It, it means we don't know the answer, and we're going to explore it to figure it out. Right. And, and typically, the most obvious, easiest answer is 
what the answer is. So that makes me sad because I really want it to be aliens. But yeah, but wait, you know, I where's the high resolution video? Yeah, uh, sure. No, absolutely. Yeah, you make a good point. In all the video we have all over the world, we would have something better. Than we have that. video of extremely rare phenomena mm-hmm. that previously would have never been filmed. Like buses tumbling in the winds of tornadoes, right? Mm-hmm. 50 years ago, 20 years ago, you would have not have said, wait, let me go home and get my camera and then film this. That's even if you had a video camera. That's not what anybody was doing. You were running out. of. But now things are happening right in front of you. It's how you can have a social movement that tracks the behavior of police with unarmed suspects. Because everyone has a video camera. Right. That's not new behavior. I've known about it since childhood. My parents warned me of it. And we knew that ever it happened, no one had a record of it. And it never made it away from the evening news. And the suspect would be all beaten up, and they'd say, oh, he's resisting arrest. And that's, you just have to believe the police, because no one is going to believe the, the person who's arrested. So now we have a video camera to corroborate any story someone might have. We have this. Where's the footage of the aliens? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And you're, you're. Around the world. Oh, only the Navy has it. Okay. So that's weird that the aliens only want to show up in front of the Navy. That would definitely be weird. Yes. Yeah. That, just, that, that would be odd. I think that, that's odd. Yes. Um, okay. In, in the book, you say that um, going from aliens to time travel, you say a, a time machine could not allow you to go back in time and kill your father because it breaks the laws of causality um well causality is not a law okay it's just a common sense understanding of the world so the we we generate laws when we have experiments to justify the law and there's no experiment of a time machine to show what would happen if you went back in time to kill your parents by the way, just to show you how violent we are in America, you don't really have to kill your parents. You just have to interrupt them from meeting each other, okay? Or have them have sex 10 minutes later than they did when you were created. Then right. you wouldn't be created. Right. Some other egg-sperm combination. Yes. So this, this violence of, let's kill them, that's very Terminator, <laughs> and it makes for an interesting movie, but it's, it's just completely unnecessary right. in, in real life. So... Um, so with a time machine, we're thinking, this is the, um, Stephen Hawking has a conjecture. It's a time protection conjecture, something like that, which suggests that you can't go back in time on your own timeline because then you can disrupt a series of events that would have prevented you from going back in time to disrupt that series of events. And that creates a paradox that in our logical understanding of the causes and effects of things should not be possible. Right. So I like, there's a placard I saw in the, in the science march, a year, you know, four years ago, when we said, what do we want? Time machine. When do we <laughs> want it? It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, you, you tend to believe if, there, if time travel could be invented, we'd, we'd know about it. Because wherever it was invented, that technology would have gotten back to us, right? Gotten back to us, right. They would have shown up today and say, hey, look at our new time machine. Sure. 
there's, yeah. there's, that's no evidence of that unless they're being very secretive. And like the aliens, <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a fun a quip about time travel. So they once quizzed people. If you had a time machine, what event would you go back in time to witness? And so many people said they wanted to go back and see the sinking of the Titanic. That's By the way, in the old TV series, Time Tunnel, the pilot episode, they go back to the Titanic. And it's this dramatic moment where he's wondering, you know, what ship is he on? Because he's, he's kind of lost in time, right? And then he sees the lifesaver and it says Titanic on it. And <laughs> Okay, he's going down. <clears throat> so uh, it's been suggested that the Titanic sank because at the first moment the time travel machine was invented, everyone went back to the Titanic and overloaded the Titanic. <laughs> that's funny. And that's why it sank. Because that, that, that was where everyone wanted to go. Yeah. Um, that seems like an odd one for people to choose if you could go look at anything. I, I don't think that'd be on my it was, list. It was popular in its day. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that, that fascinates me, you look up at the moon, right? And it's just pockmarked with all these places that's been hit with, with meteors and whatnot because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere like ours. Our atmosphere tends to pr protect us. But when you see that, it's kind of terrifying because that yep. it shows you all the things that are zipping around in space that can collide with earth and maybe yeah, earth earth's face would have looked no different except yeah. we have erosion we have weathering we have um a protective atmosphere that protects us from all but the biggest of those right from giving us a scarred face we have some remnants meteor crater in arizona it's nearly a mile across that's a remnant of a meteor that hit fifty thousand years ago so it's not like we don't retain some of these scars but of course that's arizona which is dry and it's desert and it, you don't tend to get the erosion that occurs when you have rain. So, uh, so yeah. So we've been it, hit, no doubt. We've been hit. Oh, yeah. We would totally yeah. look like the moon. In fact, we use the moon as evidence for how much we did get hit. Right. So what? Because we're in the same part of the solar system together. We, we share the same region of space. Yeah. So... Do we have any idea like when the next big one is coming? Like, is anybody watching those things and paying attention and tracking them? Like, so and is there anything we can do about it? Fortunately, the biggest among them are the easiest to detect. So, and the biggest among them are those that would do the most damage. Uh, so we're 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 okay there. The ones we should worry about are the ones that are on the cusp of having enough energy of impact to disrupt civilization. And those are about a kilometer across. If you're a kilometer across and bigger, you have enough energy to disrupt the transportation grid, the first responder grid, the food chain. It's enough to completely, not to render us extinct, but to, to force us, set us to, back. To, it was definitely set us back, about a kilometer and higher. So there were plans to try to map every single kilometer and larger uh, asteroid in the solar system. Yeah. And if we map them, I mean, okay, we, then we know what's going on. But is there anything we can do about it at this point? Well, the expectation, however real this is, is we already know how to deflect an asteroid. There have been conferences, engineering conferences on this and scientific conferences. So if you discover that an asteroid is headed our way, then you set up a deflection plan. 
And generally, you would know about it many orbits in advance. So maybe five years in advance or 10 years in advance. So then you redirect resources in the service of saving your species. Wow, man, it would be stressful to be <laughs> one of those people tasked with that responsibility. I mean, to be, be thinking about that all day. Yeah, yeah, and maybe even depressing. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and, and it really makes you, you know, we, we go camping a lot, my family, and you look up in the, in the sky and you see all those stars and how big everything is and in ways it makes you feel insignificant. And, and I can imagine that focusing on that every single day definitely has to give you a little bit of that, some, pers- some perspective on how small you are. Yeah, right. That's the cosmic perspective. Yeah. And it disrupts your ego if you walked into the room with an ego undeservably large. But if you went in with no ego at all, then it actually it's quite uplifting to be among the stars. Yeah. Not only physically, but uh, emotionally, spiritually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, that that this, this first when it's just Earth, it's called the overview effect, and it's refer, they reference astronauts how they change their outlook yeah. for having seen Earth from space. It's, you see Earth without color-coded countries. Yeah, wild. Earth, yeah, yeah. It's like, what's, what's that about? That that's you. That should be a unifying thing for all of us, and that's what all those um, you know, those psychedelics are about. Like, DNA. <laughs> it's there to dissolve your ego. Right. And, and, and I've done some of that stuff and you do it and it's pretty terrifying when you have that moment of, uh, of that ego dissolving. It's, it's terrifying to, to, to at first to, to recognize how tiny you are. It's, it's scary. And then there's a piece. That but it's only scary you. if you thought you were big, but yes. if you went in not thinking anything, then it's all good. Yeah. That's yeah. But I, I, I don't think anybody, you know, really hard to get to that place naturally. Right, I it would mean, be so. You need yeah. to hang out with an astrophysicist for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, That'll help. Sure. Um, so there's several geologists and scientists, and, and the first one that comes to mind, uh, Randall Carlson, uh, who placed this the Sphinx at twelve thousand years old now. So this is a controversial thing, um, and it's based on the water damage on the Sphinx that it couldn't have come about at the same time as the rest of Egypt. So they think there might have already been like some extinction event at that point in time. Um, so this, these kind At of, what point in time, sometime around like 12,000 years ago, 12,000. Yeah. So, number so one, what went extinct 12,000 years ago? Most of humanity, right? Like a, no. a, an asteroid hit. Most of humanity was 12,000 years ago. No, 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 no evidence of that. No, there's the, the, the KT boundary. Mm-hmm. where we lost 70% of all species. That was 65 million years ago. Right. 12,000 years ago, we have agriculture. Yes. I mean, we have cities, with pueblos, for example. Um, I don't, if there was an extinction event, I don't know anything about it, but I think I would have. Yes, I think it. you would too. I think you would too. So I'm yeah. probably reading some more fiction. But okay. <laughs> what, what do you make of the, do, have you heard these theories about the Sphinx not being the same uh, time as the rest of Egypt? And what no, I haven't. And I don't have a, I don't have a horse in that race. What does concern me is people who go see the pyramids and the Sphinx and they say, oh, ancient peoples couldn't have possibly done this. They got help from aliens, right? And you get, you hear this every now mm-hmm. and then. And sure. 
What concerns me is, of course, um, the pyramids and the Sphinx, they are in Africa. Yeah. Okay? So, but no one says that. They say, oh, they're in Egypt. That's specific. In principle, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you don't hear the word Africa, you don't then associate these great works of architecture with African peoples. It's been separated from your sense of credit for who did great things. And well, even when so you that, see that, Egyptians in history, they, they don't look like Africans necessarily. So Right. They might have had been sort of more golden in, in skin color, mm-hmm. the way modern Egyptians are. But I'm just saying Egypt is in Africa. Yes. So if you want to talk about a civilization, talk about an African civilization in Egypt. But people are not, but they talk about European civilization or in the Middle East. The the phrasing is common for other zones on the world and not so much with with Africa. But that's just, that's a side point. The, um, so if you go and you see these great sculptures and say, oh, I can't imagine how ancient peoples would have done this. This must, they must have gotten help from aliens. All right. And so to deny the brilliance of Africans in favor of aliens that you think came and helped them <laughs> is itself a profound, um, a profound example of biased thinking. Sure, sure. Um, so if they were all built at that time, in those, like, is there is there a um, reasonable explanation on the science for how they built them? If you have enough people with enough time, you can build anything of any size. So today you say, "Oh, is the building up yet?" No, it's only been eight months. Okay, after two years, the building's up. They had hundreds of years to build. I don't, I, I don't understand this mis, this mystique around these old structures where they had no limit of labor to create them. And so, so, so I don't, I don't. So just I, generations I and generations of, of labor, just hard work. Cathedrals take yeah. more than one generation to build. And that's well known. Your yeah. artisans yeah. whose parents and uncles worked on it or grandparents. So I'm, I'm not, like I said, I don't have a horse in the race of when the, the Sphinx or the pyramids were built. But the wheel was known well before 12,000 years ago. And that's yes. kind of all you need. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, I, I want to ask you about one more thing. We're kind of running out of time. Then I want to uh-huh. bring my son in. He really wanted to ask you a question. Oh, bring him in. What's his name? Yeah. His name's Keller. He'll be coming in just a, a minute here. Keller? Okay. Keller. Yeah. Um, technology, right? It's advancing at crazy speeds. And there's a quote from uh, Marshall McLuhan. He once said that humans are the sex organs of machines, which sounds terribly creepy. There's a movement called the transhumanist movement. Um, you got Ray Kurzweil thinking that the, the singularity is inevitable. Kind of seems like we're moving in the direction of, of joining with machinery, you know, like some kind of hybrid. Do you think that's what's trending for humanity? No. No. We, we, we have already blended with machines. Right, the cell phone. Because this is at my fingertips. Yeah. And so I don't need this implanted in my head, biologically 
conjoined with hardware if the hardware is at my fingertips. It's just not necessary. So the urge to want to do that, I don't see that as a great advantage over just carrying the thing around with you in your pocket, something this thin. So I just don't see that in our future. Now, I don't claim to have highly acute prognosticating abilities, but just based on what I understand and where I see the world, uh, no, I don't see that happening. Okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem it's necessary, but there's definitely people working on things like that. So we might we might be headed there whether it's necessary or not, just because. Well, there's got to be a demand for it. There's yeah. no demand. Right. I'd, I would. I don't want it. Yeah, I don't want something implanted in me. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun to me. Right. I don't. You know, it's. Yeah. Um. So this this merge now in in that sense we do have computer chips in us so heart pacemakers right are regulate the heart and you have um, you know we track the uh, integrity of your joints we can swap them out with titanium yep. I have one but of those start, oh you do so we can yep. start swapping out yep. body parts right um, but they're not controlling you you're still controlling them right. And, there, and we have things like Fitbits. I work in healthcare and we have things like Fitbits and um, uh, remote patient monitoring that you put on your wrist that sends the doctors your, your vitals and whatnot. Right. I mean, it's, which is a great thing for doctors for keeping track of your patients. I feel like at some point that's just going internal. It just makes more, more sense. It's, I, I feel like it's kind of inevitable, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that uh, I'm, I'm going to go with what you said because it. Well, given how rapidly the body wants to reject things that are not yeah. its own. Right. I just don't see that as the first. It's working. You got a Fitbit on. I mean, how much more technology do you? And and I think technology will grow in other ways. I don't see it merging with our brain. Hello, yeah. that's Keller. Come on over, Keller. Hey, Keller. I'm gonna talk into the microphone here. Yeah, that's hey. my son Keller. He read your book. Uh, he's eleven. He read Astro Astro. That's, that is designed for eleven-year-olds. Yeah, you know what they call you in the marketplace? You call the tween. Yeah, you know what a tween is? Uh, no, a tween is someone between sort of single digit age and a teenager, so it'd be like 10, 11, 12. Those are in their tweens. That's an entire marketplace that people write books for and TV shows. And like, because you're older than young kids, right? Because young kids, what do they know? But you're, but you're old enough to sort of make some decisions on your own. And so they try to respect that fact. So we're very happy that you, that you read that. Do you have a question? Uh, yes. Talking to the mic, bud. Uh, yes. Uh, Mr. Tyson, I, so, you know, I read your book and you talked about dark matter in it. And I want to know your best explanation for dark matter. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a best explanation. I, I, I know what I want it to be because it would just be really cool, be like the <laughs> coolest thing ever if it were this thing I was going to describe to you. But otherwise, I don't, I, I'm waiting around to see what people discover. It's probably some exotic particle that doesn't interact with our particles. And there's a lot of precedent for that. So that wouldn't even be a stretch to embrace. But the... Um, Wait, so, so your, part of your question was, wait, say that, say it again. 
best oh, my best friend, right. So here's what I want dark matter to be. I want dark matter to be ordinary matter in a parallel universe whose gravity we feel in this universe. And so that when objects collect into one place, we say, oh, where's the gravity? It's just, it's just dark, it's dark, it's, it's you know, dark, um, dark matter. And it's just ordinary, gra ordinary matter in an adjacent universe that we feel. That's the, to me, that's the simplest explanation for it. And that would give rise to a multiverse, by the way. Multiverse. Exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Does that help, Keller? Yeah. All right, bud. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, what grade are you in? Yes, what grade are you in? Oh, I'm in fifth grade. Fifth grade. Cool. That's when I first looked up at the night sky. And that's when I knew I wanted to be an astrophysicist. So very cool. Stay curious. <laughs> okay. Thank mm -hmm. you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for that. That, that right. was really cool. Yeah. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So we're going to let you go. I, I appreciate your time. You gave us a, a good amount of time here. Um, oh, sure. Where, where can people get your books, uh, investigate more, follow you, social media, all that? Yeah. So um, I've just beefed up my website. So it has access to almost anything anyone would care about in my life. My CV, publication records, books with links if you want to buy the books with the synopsis if you don't want to buy the book. Uh, it's got, I've got links to so many interviews that I thought rose above the others that you can, so it's one-stop shopping. Okay. Um, but also I'm on Twitter at Neil Tyson and all the other social medias, it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. So that would be TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Because uh, none of them at the time had a character limit, but Twitter did. So. I went in and it's a Neil Tyson there. So I tweet with some frequency and I invite you to follow that. There's every tweet I try to have you learn something and at least smile. There's not enough content to smile about on the yeah, internet today. That's so for I try sure. To, that is for sure. I try yeah. to I try to support yes. uh, what it is to no, I follow. It's, it's positive stuff and it and it it's fun stuff. But it's not gooey positive. It's just, you know, it's matter of fact positive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm not saying let's all hold hands and only think positive thoughts. You know, it's not that. It's not that. But if I can get you to learn something, I'm going to try to do that. That's the educator in me. Yeah, right well, you know, you're an incredibly brilliant man. And at the same time, you're very relatable and personable. Oh, which thank is, you. Which is kind of rare. You make learning fun. Like we, we watched your show, Cosmos is so much fun. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the episode about the dogs was just, we have a Oh, that's, that was a good one. And, the, and what is it? And the wolf became the shepherd. That was the yes. name of that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a Cosmos um, Space Time Odyssey. Of course, Cosmos is back now, uh, Tuesday nights through the end of the year. Uh, okay. 13 episodes going through the fall into the early winter and that's cosmos possible worlds so that's basically the third season if you count carl sagan's season right. in 1980 which i enjoyed as a kid yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all right Neil. So, i have a book coming out in the spring called cosmic okay, great queries. Cosmic i'm sorry we didn't catch that what is it i have a book coming out in the spring called cosmic queries cosmic queries a collection of of the most profound questions you might ever ask and then there's a full it's a full large illustrated book so it's it's um you know is there a multiverse and what is the nature of matter and what was around before the big bang and 
uh, all the deep questions that you've ever thought of are just they're called cosmic queries. Okay, yeah, those are some of the fun questions. Kind yeah, of they're all fun. Asking yeah. about today. All right, I'll definitely check that out when it, when it when it comes out, and maybe we'll have you back on. That would be really fun. All right. Well, thanks for your interest. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate okay. it. Okay. Take bye. Bye bye. All right, man. I want to take a minute to talk to you about my undies. Now, I know most of you men don't want to listen to another man talk about his underwear, but that's probably just because you guys are toxically masculine. I mean, guys, it's 2020 and toxic masculinity is a big problem here. So we're going we're gonna to take a shot at putting that down and opening our minds and getting with the program. So set your ideas about toxic masculinity aside. Ideas like, you know, a man should be responsible for taking care of his wife and family and ideas like, you know, men are sometimes better than girls at sports. Put those outdated, archaic ideas out of your head so we can focus on something very important. Underwear from sheathunderwear.com that will protect your peener and your testes. And you can go to their website, sheathunderwear.com, use the code word DAD and get 20% off. And guys, I'm going to tell you straight up, the underwear I'm wearing, sheath underwear, most comfortable thing I've ever worn. No contest. It's almost as if they are made out of the, the world's most expensive soft cashmere, but like a magical kind of cashmere that stays cool under all circumstances. And I know the demographics of the guys that listen to this show. You know, you're a bunch of dirty dudes who don't give a fuck, don't necessarily shower too much. You've probably been wearing the same nasty ass, crusty drawers for a decade, maybe since high school. You know, the elastic's worn out. Uh, there's some funky stains on them and more than likely some holes. Time to treat yourself, guys. You deserve it. Treat your lady. Treat your lady by putting on some fresh drawers. So I want you to pause this podcast. Pause. Don't leave it. Pause it. Go to sheathunderwear.com and order some fresh drawers using the code word DAD for 20% off. Trust me, you're going to thank me. I mean, these underwear, they will gently snuggle your boys the way a, a, the way a strong mama bear cradles her baby bears. Mm-hmm. Pro- you know, not the best analogy. Mama bears have been known to actually eat their babies at times, now that I think about it. Um, so not the best analogy. People love cute little fair, furry bears because they've been anthropomorphizing, anthro, anthropomorphizing, you know the word, predators at Disney for a very long time. And it's why you see like dumb kids climbing into bear cages and tiger cages and gorilla cages at the zoo. Those kids are idiots. They got terrible parents. Disney's to blame for that. And when I think about it, maybe it's a good thing. We got way too many people in this world and this is a way to kind of thin the herd, you know, the same way that, that a peanut allergy should be allowed to run its course and thin out the weak from the rest of us. So those terrible genes don't get passed on to the rest of humanity. I digress. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about sheath underwear. So guys, they're the best. It's my favorite item of clothing I ever had. I'm hoping at some point they start making like sports theme underwear, you know, so I can get some Clippers underwear or some Steelers underwear or something like that. Because I absolutely love them. And this is coming from a guy who went most of his life commando, no underwear. Go to sheathunderwear.com, code word the dad, get yourself a pair. If you don't like them, buy them. If you don't like them, send them, mail them to me and I'll straight up mail you your money back. All right. Password dad. 
Also, disclaimer, I will not mail you your money back. All right, let's get into the show. <laughs> 